Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, the 23rd of April. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear Jez talk about winning the most outstanding show at the Comedy Festival, now she calls The Moss. Bernard Keane was here for Brass Tax, uh, and Judith Lucy jumped on the phone to talk about her new book, Turns Out I'm Fine. And Dan Salmon was in for Tech Talk discussing internet conspiracies. Uh, we got to the bottom of uh, giving yourself the five-finger discount. Uh, for Feature Creatures, we spoke to a biomedical ethicist, Julian Copeland, about these part animal, part human hybrids. And wrapping up the season of AFLW, Kate O'Halloran joined us. Triple R. Um, bit of a big weekend, I'll be honest. Just one of the um, greatest achievements to ever happen to a comedian in Australia. And I did that on the weekend. <laughs> it was me, I did it. Yay, I did it. did it. I uh, won the award for the most outstanding show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, it was formerly known as The Barry, um, named after Barry Humphreys. Mm. And then he was saying stuff about things and other comics were like, we're not comfortable with that and um, not comfortable in accepting uh, an award named after someone that says that kind of stuff. So they went, oh, we'll we'll chain, we'd hear that. Mm. Um, And so it got changed to just the most outstanding show. Um, And I I reckon we should just call it The Moss, right? The the most outstanding show. Mossy. Yeah, The Moss. Great. I got The Mossy. Yeah. Because it was, you know, um, saying The Barry is obviously so much easier than the most, the most outstanding. outstanding yeah, show. called the Moss. Yeah, so it was just it'd be like, oh, you know, like oh, you won the bloody Barry, mate. Oh, you got the Barry. Oh, people Where, still say it, do you reckon? Yeah, it's starting to. It's shifted now, especially. It was only got changed in you know the last festival in 2019. That was the first time that they um, announced that it wouldn't be called that. So there was yeah. But it was it's hard to change is hard. Yes, well, Edinburgh that. was the Peria. Yeah, and then it was the If. Yep, and now it's Dave's because of the uh... all the Dave's that do comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I think the channel, the Comedy Channel, Dave. Yeah, uh, but everyone knows what you're talking about still. Yeah, yeah. Best show, best show of the festival. Like I'm still like I can't. There's times where I just can't believe. Like I. Like this morning was just looking at, and the award, mind you, is so nice. It's so beautiful. It's got the Judy Horacek, um design on it, um, and it's just like, like looks like it's all these block. Anyway, I'll bring it in for show and tell one Yay. day. Did you cry? Yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah, heaps all the time. So was it Saturday like, afternoon? Saturday afternoon. So the awards were at, held at the top, and it was just you know. Um, if you're a comedian and you got um, invited to come to the awards, there was a, probably a fair chance you were up for an award because mm-hmm. it's just for like, um, you know, industry, like festival people, mm. judges and, you know, VIP. So it's it's comed- general public don't get invited to the actual ceremony. Um, not as a ceremony, but, you know. So um, Greg Larson won the Piece of Wood Award. Um, which is the the Comics Choice Award that I gave that I won. You won. I won last time, um, last festival. Um, so and it was the effort to get him to come. Like it was like we had to in, invite oh. him, and then there was like 
someone said, like, Edo messaged me going, like, Greg says that he's not getting, he doesn't have to be there till two. <laughs> um, but they started at one. And like, he was like, get there at two for a 2.30 start. And it's like, mate, they're all, they're all going to be over by then. And you can't, like, you can't, how do you casually... How do you convince him without him knowing that he's Yeah, yeah. It? So, and then, you know, one of our producers kind of, you know, messaged, hey, g'day, Greg, just let me, I'll see you at the awards. Starting up, just remind it starts at one. And then, so when he got up, he goes, yeah, I, I figured I was getting something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was that was very exciting, um, getting to, you know, present that award. Um, and then... Yeah, um, and it was so exciting. Like um, our very own Nat Harris won the Golden Gibbo, named after Linda Gibson, um, with, for her show that she did with Hannah Camilleri, Pet Nat and Hannah Chocola. Oh, very good. Um, and yeah, someone was saying that it's a very, it was a very, very funny show. Um, so hopefully she'll, you know, do it. They'll do it again mm. at some stage. It'd be great to see. Is the Golden Gibbo? What's that category? Golden Gibbo is given to – it's named after Linda Gibson. Mm. So it's given to a show that's kind of independent, really, mm-hmm. independent of thought, independent of producers and, and whatnot. Um, and you get a really um, shitty bottle of red wine, <laughs> cheap bottle of red wine, because um, that was Linda's favourite drink. Just you'd always <laughs> have a red wine. Um, and also $3,000 which is pretty sick. Great. Um, and then uh, Best Newcomer went to Charlie's Angel, who started doing comedy a few years ago, um, but did it, um, did it as a drag character called Charity Work. Um, <laughs> and then this year did did Comedy Zone, like at last festival, so this was obviously their first solo show, hence Best Newcomer. Um, and... Uh, just, just the most beautiful speech because it just talked about I just, I just wanted to, you know, come out as myself doing comedy and that was, you know, quite um, challenging because I just didn't think that people would accept me for me and it was mm. just like, oh, just so much crying. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, and then Kath was there. Obviously, so is there and then it was like the announcement of the – and there was eight, eight nominations mm. Um, and the previous one was James Acaster, who's in London. Um, so it was all he had pre-recorded the announcements. You know, did his video speech and said, and the nominees are went through them all. And then there was like a bit of squiggly, whoa, and the winner is, um, and it's and they announced me, and I just was like, oh, I stood I stood still for a very long time. You stood up? No, just I was already standing oh. up. I was just, you know, Kath was next to me, and she gave me a big kiss and a hug, and other friends were around me, they were all hugging and patting me on the back, and I was just in utter, like, yeah, just shock. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, oh, oh, my God. And then, yeah, got up and said a little speech. Why did stuff. it mean so much? This is like the Logies for, for – like it's – there's – you can only win this award once mm-hmm. um, and you can – it's just like this is the peak for comedy. Like this is the inter- – you know, you do the festival every – obviously you don't do it for the awards but it's that recognition of of all the hard work that you've done. Um, and I've got to say I've, I've – I did it in an Instagram post. I've got to do um, thank 
the fact that I've got this job is not lost. It, it, I don't think if I had this job, I wouldn't have got that award. Like the fact that I get to do radio every morning and someone once described me like, oh, yeah, I love listening to, to breakfasts. It's like you have, you know, you learn stuff um, and then you have like these great regular people and then Jezza comes in with some cooked story. <laughs> um, and being able to tell those cooked stories over the process of, you know, over the last five years means that I get to tell these stories again and again and again and then um, develop it and then put it in a show and then that show wins the best show of the festival. Um, So, like, if if that doesn't give you a reason to um, subscribe during April (laughs) Amnesty... Oh, Mm. wow! Professional to the end. All the way, all the way. But... Congratulations! If I'm not sure if we're allowed to be proud, but certainly you can be proud. Potent, Absolutely it's brilliant. Proud. It's so exciting. And and who were the previous winners that make it even more special for you? Like, because uh, you know, I'm thinking Hannah. Yeah, there's Hannah, Denise Scott. Yeah, did Zoe Kimsmar win that one? Zoe Kimsmar yeah. has won. Um, and it was great. She was there, and I got to hang out with her that night a bit, and just. It was nice to have someone else that had experienced it as well. Um, but she said, oh, man, tough tough break having to, you know, for you to get it during the day. It used to be on a Saturday night. Yeah. And she said she ended up crying into a bush with, hun- like, Hungry Jack's in her hand. But it was – she was just – it was full – like, just – I think she – because she'd won the Golden Gibbo that year as well. Right. Wow. And, but she'd found out earlier. She, she's like, I was already, like, 15 beers deep before I yeah. found out. Like, she I was like, I didn't have it. But isn't it? Weren't you, I remember you were saying on Friday that you were kind of glad it was in, early in the day. So I you weren't sitting so. around waiting. Yeah, I thought so. But then I won <laughs> and then I had to do a show. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So apologies to everyone that came to that show. But I'm, it's so funny because you said you had a friend that went. Loved it. Loved, yeah, but you said, oh, your friend, my friend saw it and she wrote this text. And I thought, because someone else said, oh, I saw, um, this is, I heard it through another friend and they were like, oh, I saw um, Jez's show. Like, yeah, loved it. It was so great. She'd had a few though. Ah. <laughs> and I thought your friend was going to point out. Because I was like, I, in the first five minutes, I was like, I can't, I've forgotten. <laughs> I don't know what's next. And my tech had to yell out. For me, it's like, the one supermarket. About- <laughs> oh, amazing! It was like that's my second joke in. I was like, oh, and just yeah. Oh, and I didn't hear anything of the sort. I got two oh, texts on the night from the two people who weren't saying how great. It I was. mean, I had a I had a terrific time, and then I was like hosting this late night show at like ten thirty. So oh. it was like, yeah, I drank a lot of champagne. Yeah. I had espresso martinis Oof. just to keep going, <laughs> and then yeah, some other cocktails. It was yeah. It, Pretty a pretty epic day. Oh, now you get to experience a sweet, sweet come down. Nah, <laughs> had that yesterday. It's all good. Triple R.
The Biden administration's decision last week to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the consequent decision by other nations like Australia to do the same brings to an end what's termed the forever war. On the line for Brass Tax this week to discuss the withdrawal and Australia's decades-long involvement in Afghanistan, we're joined by author of Surveillance, War on the Internet, The Mess We're In, How Our Politics Went to Hell and Dragged Us With It, and political editor of Crikey, Bernard Keane. Thanks for speaking with us. Good morning, how are you going? Excellent. Um, take us back to the first days of the invasion. What was the logic behind it and how does that logic hold up now? Sorry, what was that? Sorry? The, 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 the logic of the invasion, of our, the first days, what, what was the logic and how does the logic hold up now? Well, the, the original logic was to remove um, a terrorist haven, in, in effect. The perception was the Taliban had harboured al-Qaeda, particularly... Osama bin Laden and was, you know, in effect, shared responsibility for uh, 9/11. So, in you know the aftermath of, of the attack, the the desire of the Americans was a to lash out to provide some sort of exemplary punishment for a state that had been that was perceived to have supported the Taliban, and b actually try to get its hands on some of the perpetrators or the, or the organisation uh, behind it. The problem is, though, that, that that mission rapidly morphed into something very different. It morphed into a nation-building exercise. The, the, the question became, well, if we get rid of the Taliban, who then rules Afghanistan? What role do we play in that? Uh, what role can they play in continuing to support our attacks on uh, terrorism uh, throughout the region? So... That initial kind of drift from let's get rid of the Taliban, let's uh, try and get our hands on Osama bin Laden, turned into what has been going for the last 20 years, which is a very confused um, uh, goal of trying to establish a regime in Afghanistan that serves Western interests and is reasonably stable. And it looks like that uh, that 20-year uh, agenda is, uh, is going to end in failure. Mm. And what has the cost been? Well, the cost has been quite extraordinary. So the, 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 the cost from the American military point of view has been nearly $900 billion. So the best part of a trillion dollars. There's been about 40 or $50 billion in reconstruction aid that's also been spent in Afghanistan by the Americans. So you're looking at the best part of a trillion dollars uh, from the United States in terms of um, uh, in terms of the financial cost, uh, the Australian cost, our contribution, one estimate is it's around ten billion dollars. So, you know, reasonably you know, large amounts of money have been expended. The real cost, of course, isn't in cash. It isn't in treasure. It's in in human life. Um, there have been over over two thousand American casualties. There's been a hundred thousand uh, uh, wounded. There's been 41 Australian uh, fatalities. There's been uh, um, uh, over 100 uh, wounded. And there's been hundreds of thousands of uh, Afghan people and uh, Pakistani people uh, who have been killed or injured as well, uh, a cost that will never be fully known because we don't count the, uh, the lives of, uh, of Afghan and Pakistan uh, competence or civilians in the same way with the same enthusiasm that we count um, uh, and diligence that we count um, our own casualties. Um, and that, that cost is one that's going to continue to be paid for a very long time. I mean, uh, um, about 6,000 US 
service uh, men and women or uh, veterans take their own lives every year. Uh, the mental health burden on veterans in the United States is quite remarkable. The same thing applies at a smaller scale here. Uh, we have a very serious problem around veteran suicide uh, from uh, people who served in Afghanistan or in uh, uh, Iraq. And uh, that sort of, that toll, the long-term toll, uh, in terms of mental health, in terms of trauma, in terms of um, looking after veterans who've been injured in those conflicts is one that we're going to continue to bear for a long time to come. And the families, of course, of those servicemen and women and veterans uh, are going to continue to pay that price um, for decades to come as well. Um, what about the corrosion of trust in, you know, both the military institutions and in Australia, Defence Force? Uh, you know, overseas and in Australia. What, what's been the effect of this two decades of failure? Well, it seems to be that, that one of the lessons that we kind of should have learnt from Vietnam and, uh, and should have been wary of um, when entering, you know, another long-term conflict like the one that we ended up with both in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan is that when you have these long-term conflicts, um, it, it, it degrades the military that is required to fight it. It degrades its institutional capacity to exercise restraint. It degrades its uh, its values and its codes of conduct. And you end up with um, incidents where uh, basic sort of military command breaks down or where the codes of conduct, the rules of war under which we're supposed to operate, end up getting violated. Um, and that's certainly been the case in Australia with um, uh, the Brereton report, which revealed, uh, you know, basically a complete breakdown of culture within um, uh, the SAS, and very, very sort of uh, gruesome consequences of that. Uh, dozens of Afghan civilians or uh, uh, disarmed combatants being killed, um, or other war crimes being perpetrated, cover-ups of those, um, and as we've seen recently um, uh, in, in most recent media reports, um, uh, you know, a fairly, a fairly sort of wide-scale breakdown of military discipline um, amongst uh, amongst those soldiers. Uh, so that sort of corrosion of of what is supposed to be our elite soldiers um, has been quite noticeable uh, in Australia. In the United States, the that, that corrosion has been. Uh, of a different kind. There have been war crimes committed. Um, uh, the United States um, has uh, has gone been a little bit more transparent about its approach to uh, pursuing uh, war criminals in its ranks than we have. But the biggest corrosion in the US case has been the fact that it was absolutely apparent now um, from from documents that that have now become publicly available that uh, the United States military had no idea what it was doing in Afghanistan. It simply had no grasp of the country. It had no grasp of the strategy it should have been pursuing. Um, and yet, and it was fully aware that it was struggling to achieve its most basic goals. And yet it kept on lying to the American public about, about uh, its success there. It kept on insisting the war was a success. It kept on insisting that uh, goals were being achieved. It kept on insisting that the data that was emerging from uh, the conflict was showing that uh, uh, goals were being achieved, and that was simply not the case. The American military were lying um, uh, to, um, uh, to the American public in a very similar way to what happened during Vietnam. Mm. Um, 
And of course, there was, you know, this, the American the military wasn't doing this off its own bat. Of course, it was doing it with the encouragement of um, of politicians and administration officials across across multiple uh, administrations. And you know, it's you know, it's hard to it's hard to avoid uh, invoking Vietnam and the the fact that you know a long conflict there saw people, American people, being lied to. It saw war crimes being committed. It saw a corrosion of military discipline. Um, and, you know, all of these things could have been predicted and I, I suspect were predicted, um, and yet that didn't stop them from happening. And now that there's a vacuum, what do we predict will happen? Has the Taliban announced its intentions? Well, the, look, the Taliban is... There's already a power-sharing agreement in place negotiated by Donald Trump, uh, of all people. One of the few sort of sensible things he did was to, was to simply decide America was going to leave Afghanistan and he was going to negotiate directly with the Taliban along those lines. So there is, uh, there is formally a commitment basically to restore the Taliban to power, to power in a power-sharing uh, deal. Now, how long that lasts uh, is anyone's guess, but it's probably not going to last particularly long. The Taliban, uh, uh, you know, are very potent militarily, and I think the widespread expectation is that um, Afghanistan will revert to Taliban rule, um, you know, more or less 20 years, maybe maybe a little bit more, mm. after uh, after they were driven from uh, from power by the Americans. And but what kind of relationship the West has with a restored Taliban-controlled Afghanistan is. Um, uh, remains to be seen, um, but um, the Taliban haven't changed in terms of their um, their social policies or their um, their approach to to governing and ruling um, compared to 20 years ago. It's still uh, very repressive and still uh, very very brutal. And just finally, it seems as though there could not have been a more comprehensive squandering of goodwill after 9/11. Uh, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time when it was happening, what did you think the response to 9/11 should have been? Oh, oh that's a, that's a very difficult question. You, you're absolutely right about the squandering of of goodwill. I mean, um, you know, even even America's even people who were neutral toward or even hostile toward the United States were enormously sympathetic to to the United States after 9/11 and supportive uh, of what it did. Um, but at that at, at that time, I think a lot of us feared that it was going to be used as a pretext for another extension of the military-industrial complex. That is, that uh, you know, we'd, we'd, the Cold War was over. It was over in you know the early 1990s. In that sort of across the 1990s, we kind of had a peace dividend of lower military expenditure um, uh, by by all countries. But along came 9/11 and the opportunity for um, for uh, people within government who supported um, uh, arms manufacturers and um, you know devoted war hawks to really ramp up the idea of a global permanent war on terror. And that's of course what we had. And that global war on terror never made us any safer. It actually made us less safe. And that's not that is a conclusion that uh, you know our most eminent intelligence chiefs uh, now agree with. So the, the global war on terror made us less safe, and it provided enormous profits for arms manufacturers. It sold a lot of newspapers for our media companies. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, Westerners and people living in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq uh, and Syria 
um, uh, less developed countries continue to suffer a brutal toll of terrorism. And, um, you know, that lesson continues to, to be played out right now. I mean, we're seeing that with the rise of right-wing and white supremacist terrorism in the United States. A lot of the participants are either serving or former um, American defence pool personnel. So it's, uh, you know, this, this long period of, of permanent anti-terrorist conflict is continuing to generate and create terrorism. And uh, it's, if you're an arms manufacturer, it's a great outcome. If you're the rest of us, it's, uh, it's a tremendous waste of money. So what we should have done, um, uh, I guess, uh, what we shouldn't have done was embark on a, um, on a global war on terror. Uh, but the sheer push for some sort of visceral reaction to 9-11 was, uh, was so overwhelming back then that um, I don't think there were too, too many politicians who would have stood in the way of it. Yeah. Uh, Bernard Keane, politics editor of Crikey, thank you. And uh, it's fantastic to have you on Breakfasters. No worries. Thank you. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Off we go. All right. Comedian, writer, actor, Australia's sweetheart, Judith Lucy, has for decades performed at acclaimed one-woman shows, including Judith Lucy versus Men and the recent smash hit, Disappointments, with Denise Scott. Now, the award-winning and best-selling author of The Lucy Family Alphabet and Drink, Smoke, Pass Out has released her new book, Turns Out I'm Fine, How Not to Fall Apart, and tell us about it. The uh, overwhelmed and dying funny lady joins us now. Judith, welcome back to Breakfasters. Um, a delight to be here. I am sick to death of talking about myself and the book, but but thank you. <laughs> yeah, nonetheless. Well, it's this is the thing. It's it's billed as your most candid and insightful yet. Does it feel that way to you? Oh, look. Can I, before I even answer that, I'm just going to tell you that a couple of days ago, my birth mother. So this is the woman who gave me up and subsequently has been trying to make up for lost time over the intervening years, Mm. she rang me up and said, I am sick to death of seeing and hearing you talk about that book. (laughs) So I'm just just putting that out there and saying that I feel a little bit the same, Daniel. But, um, yeah, look, it is candid, but, you know, I'm a one-trick pony. That's all I've got. I thought, how can I make this book different from the other books? And, you know, short of writing a science fiction thriller, which it was never going to be, I thought, well, I guess I could be even more excruciatingly honest than the other books. Let's make people even more uncomfortable and tell them even more information about me that they don't want to know. And you know what? Hats off to me because I think I've done it. Yeah. There's a, a bit of a language warning here. I know. Well, I don't know if I should. But I'm so glad I read the book and didn't just rely on the excerpts that you can read in newspapers because it gets quite full on. Well, Daniel, can I just applaud you for being one of the only heterosexual men who will ever read the book? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also the clitoris never ages, the things you learn. No, isn't that incredible? You know, your grandmother might have forgotten where she's popped a cup of tea, but she is rocking the clit of a 20-year-old, and I think that's something we can all embrace. Um, you know, I might be menopausal, but my clitoris is looking just fine. Um, and a lot of movie references in the book. I'm thinking, I mean, Planet of the Apes gets a shout-out as well. Mm. Actually, look, if we're referencing things, and can I just do a special shout-out to Geraldine Hickey, winner of the award for the best show on the International Mm. Melbourne Comedy Festival and say I am seeing it on Saturday night and simply couldn't be more thrilled. Um, Thank you. 
Daniel, I wanted to circle back, as they like to say, yeah. um, to a little something you said earlier this morning when you referred to a conversation that you and Mon had, and all I remember is that it involved using the word pizzazz. <laughs> And I just wanted to applaud that because I am a very big supporter of the word pizzazz and I wanted to throw another word into the ring that I think is a is a is a cousin of pizzazz yeah. and that word is panache. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, I like yes. it. I like it. Because and I think if you've got panache, you're doing things with a lot of pizzazz. Well, that's well, what's right. the difference? What's the difference between panache and pizzazz? Do you know what, Mon? I actually looked it up. I can actually tell you. I have written it down. Pizzazz is an attractive combination of vitality and glamour, and panache is flamboyant confidence of style and manner. Mm. And, oh. Geraldine, now yes. I want to come back to the fact that you are now an award winner, but I want to share a story with you. I am an older lady of comedy. It's a bit of advice. Do with it what you will. But many Let, let ago, me get my pen and paper. Do it. Do it. Do it, young lady. You've got the world at your feet. I was at like an actor's benefit thing many years ago and a gentleman came up to me. I'll be honest, I don't know whether he wanted to represent me or if he was just having a crack. But either way, he pulled out a purple card that was covered with stars and said, I run a talent agency called, you've guessed it, Panache. (laughs) (laughs) Now... Geraldine, that was the moment when I simply should have walked away from the most successful comedy agents, token artists, and hitched my wagon to Panache. So I'm saying to you, young lady, that if an opportunity like that ever comes along, grab it with both hands. We're, oh, we're talking God. Panache and Pizzazz. You, you say in the book that... Uh, being cool. Good on you for bringing us back to the. Being, well, I don't, <laughs> don't want to bore you, but being being cool. So speaking of panache, pizzazz, being cool, not traditionally, well, more traditionally, the domain of men. You reckon it's hard for women to yeah. be cool. Yeah, that's all I've got. I mean, you're right. I've made I've made the point in the book. I have made the point in the book, but I think there is something about you know having babies, having periods that is just not that cool, mm. whereas, uh, you know, and I do also refer to the fact that I once heard about a, uh, a female artist who smoked a cigarette with her vagina, <laughs> which is, in fact, a, a wonderful story that Denise Scott likes to tell. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that is the same mm. as, uh, as you know, well, I just mean the cliché of coolness. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's also, it's very Deep, isn't it? I mean, do you feel as though your comedy has gone a bit deeper? I mean, obviously not this morning, but... No. (laughs) Generally speaking, no. I am am no deeper. I am absolutely no deeper than I was before. What about therapy? I am am reasonably shallow. Yeah. But I have, have by by just kind of digging down as deep as I possibly could, Mm. I've tried to present myself with some added... Depth. Yes. And, you know, if I've fooled anyone, great. <laughs> um, you've seen Rob Snarsky playing in a living room. Yes, I have. Can I, can I just applaud you, Daniel, for actually referencing some things in the book that, to this point, no one else has. <laughs> you've gone with cool. You've gone with Rob Snarsky. I see what you're doing. You, you, you've, you've thought these are the triple R points. It's not intentional. It's just like, wow, that sounds like a fun afternoon. I mean, obviously it was a traumatic period, but 
No, well, as you know, Daniel, it wasn't a fun afternoon. <laughs> that was days before my brother died. So, I mean, look, it's all how you frame things. And I, I certainly did enjoy Rod's music. We all did. But the looming mortality of my closest relative put a bit of a dampener on it. Well, there is that. Uh, Hasn't this been an interesting chat? I think so. I'm, cu- I'm curious to know about the the podcast you put out. I don't know if it was, was last year, or even the year before. Overwhelmed and dying. Did that come before the book, or was the book a bit of a flow on from that? No, the book was definitely before that, and um, that was kind of weirdly well timed because it was kind of released just as all of the lockdown pandemic stuff was was happening. But um, I was overwhelmed and dying even before the pandemic. <laughs> But it seemed to be um, it seemed to be a good thing for people to listen to while they were in lockdown. Uh, in in I think it had a very similar appeal to the book in that I think it comforted a lot of people simply because they could sit there and listen to it and go, "Thank Christ, I'm not Judith Lucy." Do <laughs> <laughs> I think that? Um... Like you're obviously a very successful and talented comedian and have been doing it for a few years. Um, there are 33, Geraldine. There we go. 33. Um, there are people, there are other comics that have been around for that long. Well, actually, they're not around anymore. And you're still quite, you know, I guess you create your own work and, and whatnot. But what do you think, what else do you think is the secret to your lasting success? Um, it's it's just sheer bloody talent. <laughs> I just I'm I'm like lightning in a bottle. <laughs> no, I honestly I think you know what I think it is work. I think you've got to just work really hard, and I think you've got to try and and I see how much you've done this without blowing smoke up your ass, young lady. Why <laughs> question? Well. <laughs> Well done. It's worked. <laughs> your, your, your sneaky little plan worked. Um, I think you've just got to try and keep pushing yourself. Do you know what else I've noticed with you, though, is that you are adaptable to change. Well, if you're not, you're screwed, I think. Yeah. And I think, and I, and I guess, I mean, look, Daniel, thank you for saying the stuff about the book being honest and deep or whatever. It's just I think you've kind of got to present yourself challenges as an artist like mm. I, I genuinely do I actually without getting all serious as apparently I am I, when I sat down to write this book I did actually go I want this to be the most honest thing I've ever written and I think if you're an artist it's you you know you can't keep doing the same thing I guess that's what I would argue so I think I think it helps if you try different mediums and you just try and keep getting better at your craft really mm. What do you reckon about self-analysis and reflection and the role of parents? Like you mentioned sort of, to paraphrase, I suppose, at some point you just need to get on with it. Uh, You know... Yeah, look, I guess that's what I think. I mean, like, you know, the book is divided into thirds and the first third is how did I get here, except the language might be a tiny bit juicier. Um, (laughs) And I do look back on my parents and my childhood and all that sort of stuff. And, look, I I think everyone does need to do that. I'm a very big fan of therapy. 
But then I think there comes a point where you have to go, look, I'm 53 uh, and my parents have been dead for over 20 years. Mm. Maybe some of it's on me. So I, I think you've got to, you know, I think there's a healthy balance between trying to work out why you are who you are and why you behave the way you do, but then I think there comes a point where you just need to let the past go. Yeah. Write that down, everyone. <laughs> let the past go and have some panache. <laughs> Speaking of um, writing down, this is a sort of a hack writer, boring writers' festival question, but you mentioned Spyrax. But you don't seriously use Spyrax books to write in, do you? Yes. Oh, <gasps> wow. Yes, I do, as does Tony Martin, I happen to know. Ah. But the wire is so cheap. <laughs> what do you use? Should I be using like a moleskin? <laughs> no. I, or should I be writing with a quill? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a yellow legal pad. Well, how many books have you? Down. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Checkmate. Yeah, bloody <laughs> oath. Suck on that, bird. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's uh, oh, also this Jack Thompson film, Peterson. Mm. Is that worth checking out? Oh no, it's absolutely dreadful. <laughs> now, when Scotty and I were scratching around for material for the Zoomcast shows we did during lockdown, I don't even remember why, but for some reason, Scotty wound up watching Peterson on YouTube. It is a dreadful 1974 vehicle for Jack Thompson, written by David Williamson. And as I point out in the book, there is very little plot, but there is a lot of a young Jackie Weaver's bush. So if that's where your interest lies, then absolutely go for gold. But there's there's very little happening in it. There's a lot of – there are many, many shots of men drinking, smoking and saying, oh, get stuffed, Barry, and then just a lot of female nudity, really. Although, to be fair, we do actually see quite a bit of Jack's equipment as well. Nice. I think you just sold it very well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's some great 70s parenting in it as well. Actually, my favourite scene is where Jack Thompson and Jackie Weaver go to a party at someone's house and where are the kids? They're in the car parked out the front. Perfect. Oh, amazing. Um, and just finally, I suppose, or near finally, your shoulders, are they okay? No, they are screwed. Shit. To be really honest with you, I am off my face on cannabis oil as we speak <laughs> because that is the only way I can sleep at the moment. Yes, both my shoulders went on me while I was typing the book. So that's a good thing to mention. Even if you buy the book just out of pity, do that. I'll take it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I had an operation on my left shoulder three or four weeks ago, and um, it turns out that's a bit hurty. Oh, have you ever heard of someone injuring their shoulders? Well, right, it's new to me. Yeah, well, I, anyway, it's very boring. I've had shoulder problems before, oh, and I right. think the difference between before and now is I'm 53. Yeah. God damn. Well, the book is uh, – I mean, I missed – I was reading on the tram and missed my stop. So if that doesn't... Oh, that's a very nice recommendation. And Thank I, you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's engrossing. Or I've got early onset dementia. Who the hell knows? But um, <laughs> it's, it's just... You really could have stopped the sentence I... soon and <laughs> would have felt a lot better about this. No, no. It's, of course, it's incredible. And um, it's out now. It's called, turns out, I'm fine. How not to fall apart. And... Uh, Yes, and we need to get out that it is a very, it's ultimately optimistic despite it being quite harrowing in parts. 
Look, I mean, you know, Geraldine, take your dugong patting story because I will see you and raise you and say that I wound up snorkelling with a humpback whale while Tim Winton was holding my hand. It's not a competition, but it is, and I won. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought of you the whole time. And and also I know, I know that time there weren't supposed to be any whale sharks, but you saw one, and oh, that's yeah. like that's That the was peak. the best. Yeah. yeah, it was you great. So, so yes, there are there are some some very nice stories in there too. Not to mention stories of me getting a vulva portrait done. So there really is something for everyone. <laughs> the, you, the title um, of that chapter is particularly good, but you have to buy the book to find out what it's yes. called. Yes, and if you're going to Tasmania, what are you? One Judith one fifty five. I am. If you want to see my vulva, it is in Mona, and I am Judith155. So, fellas, you're welcome. <laughs> Judith Lucy, thanks heaps. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Dan Salmon, co-host of Triple R's Wednesday Tech Show at 7pm, bite into it, joins us to talk tech. Hey, Dan. Hey, guys. How's it going? Excellent. Excellent, uh, excellent. What have you been spending your time up to? Now, yeah, this is um, this is an interesting one that we're going to be talking about this week. It comes from something that happened last week that um, you might have heard about. So the Federal Department of Health has been making an effort to get people to feel more comfortable with taking COVID-19 vaccines, a pretty admirable thing and something they should be doing. Um, one of the ways they're doing it is uh, with a website of FAQs about vaccines. Now, most of them are pretty straightforward, things like how long immunity lasts, what the differences are between different vaccines. But there was one question that seemed a bit weird that got my attention and it got a fair few other people's attention. Now, this is verbatim from the website. Can COVID-19s connect me to the internet? <gasps> but can now, it? <laughs> no. Yeah, see, before I continue, the answer is no, absolutely not. Just so we're clear, COVID-19 vaccines do not connect you to the internet. But it did make me wonder where this kind of information and misinformation comes from and how it gets to the point where the government of the country feels the need to address the question. Mm. Mm. So now it's kind of common. We're talking broadly about internet conspiracies here, just, you know, it's a a big theme. Um, It's kind of commonly accepted that most online conspiracies start in dark corners of the internet, like places like 4chan and 8chan when when it existed in its various kind of incarnations. Similar open forums that kind of pride themselves on not censoring content. And so they kind of ferment and knock around for a bit, get a bit of steam up, and then they start making their way into more socially acceptable areas of the internet like Reddit, which is still a cesspit, but it does have a few guidelines about illegal content. So you, um, you, there are stuff you can't post, but it's got a bit more credibility. And then from there, they generally make it into more mainstream platforms like Twitter and Facebook and eventually into your racist uncle's newsfeed. Now... <laughs> um, it's it's kind of it, there, there are different drivers to how this might happen. Um, so sometimes it's just you know trolls who treat it as a game, and so they'll they'll pick something out from that they see in you know the back of four chan and be like, oh, this looks like an interesting thing. I'm going to play it, mess with people's heads, and um, that you know that's one way of doing it. But it can also be quite lucrative. Now, um, in 2018. NBC reported that. So I'm guessing we've all heard of QAnon. I won't go into Mm -hmm. too much detail about it is because it doesn't deserve the oxygen. But um, 
that was the 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 theories of QAnon were found on 4chan by a couple of moderators and an obscure YouTuber, and so they started promoting it on their own channels and kind of building a myth around QAnon and kind of dragging up this poster who was making this stuff up, uh, and they were doing it for more YouTube views and for more clicks on their websites and essentially more money, and the moment it got big was when they decided, similar to what I was saying just before, that. Um, you know, they moved it to Reddit. And once it was on Reddit, it became legitimate, more legitimate. Um, and then it started eating itself because people who followed the QAnon thing initially started being suspicious of the people who were promoting it and accusing them of being the kind of, you know, Q, this this mythical creature that creates this stuff. But um, it's, I don't know, it's it's just kind of a, a, an organic thing and um, it, 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 it really kind of can happen in, in many ways. Obviously, conspiracy theories have been around for a long time before, like before the internet. They predate it, like. It, but there's an interesting thing that I read in Wired where um, it talked about how there's generally a bit of a boost in conspiracies when there's an advancing communications technology. It's like a big jump in what, what we're using. So um, when uh, mass printing became available people started making anti-Semitic pamphlets. And a lot of these conspiracies are anti-Semitic. It's kind of a weird theme that kind of runs along through the centuries. Um, so people would print these pamphlets and sneak them into libraries. And because they were in libraries, people would find them in a book and be like, oh, it's in a library. It must be true. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And that, that's the thing. You're kind of jumping on the legitimacy of these things. And so – and and when, when you know, into – internet uh, conspiracies get to the mainstream, to Facebook, to Twitter, where people are trusting their, um, I suppose, uh, the sources. They might not be trusting, you know, ABC or you guys doing the news in the morning, but they're trusting something because it's coming from the internet, which they th see as inherently, or the parts of the internet that they trust is something that they, inher they, they inherently believe. Uh, similarly, in the 20th, early 20th century, when radio first uh, b became widespread, uh, people were hearing ghosts in the static. And then um, when TV came around in the sort of 40s and 50s, uh, people were thinking that, you know, Tom and Jerry was Nazi propaganda. Um, obviously, the people are saying that the moon landing was faked, uh, you know, that's a, that, that's another big one. Um, so yeah, look, with with new technology comes you know a, a new opportunity for people to spread misinformation, and the ease with which people stuff can post stuff on the internet has just made it more prevalent. And that's why it feels like it's everywhere because it, it kind of is. Mm. Do we get to the bottom of precisely who we think Q was, who who created? This fantasy. No, this is the thing. Like a lot of people have been accused of being Q. Um, some high-profile people. I saw somewhere somewhere saying that they thought that Donald Trump was Q because a, a lot I've of the stuff. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of the stuff that Q talks about is pro-Trump, and obviously, you know, it, it, it would make sense. But I mean, it, it, at this stage, I don't think anything would surprise me about who Q is or what Q would say. Mm. Um, is and, it just and one I, person? I don't know if we'll ever know. Is, is Q meant to just be one person though, or is it like a well, yeah, and that, that's the other thing is 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 it a is it a kind of group of people? These three people who kind of you know found Q, the 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 big current accusation is that they they are Q, mm. and and so and you know they're 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 possibly the the, the front runners for it. But I mean, the, there was also a, a bit of stuff around when uh, Joe Biden got inaugurated that whoever it was that was Q just said, yeah, no, I'm done now. I've had my fun, and then walked away. But I mean, then. then you know, the nature of pause a vacuum, someone else will just turn up and stay the their queue. 
Is the um, motivation money, like I know, like the initial, like I know people like read stuff and go, oh, that's interesting and oh, and put it out there. But the people that are initially putting this stuff out there, like because you just mentioned that, you know, money, you know, they make money from it. And I guess they would have made money from it, like when they printed it in books and put it out on the radio and stuff. Um, is that? Do you think it's money that's motivating, or is oh, it, look, you know? yeah, absolutely. I think I think money is definitely a motivator. It, it, monetizing conspiracies can be a bit tricky because it needs to be one that you know you think people will buy into. Um, you know, but pe- people aren't inherently stupid. It's what what, mm. what it kind of comes from is that people are mistrustful and. Another thing is that people really like the idea of knowing things that other people don't. Like, you know, I'm in the club. I'm in, I mean, I I'm, I know stuff you don't and therefore I have something over you. And so when people are buying into a conspiracy theory, there's, there's a whole lot of motivations behind it, but it needs to be – it needs to have a real hook. And so – the idea that you know people are making money out of it definitely, but I mean some people do it just pu- out of pure malevolence. Like if, mm. if if you if you dig through the bottom of and I use the word bottom advisedly of four chan and eight chan, like there are some horrible people in there who just like messing with people's heads. Like you know it's the ultimate in trolling, and and a lot of it is just trolling. But yeah, look, there is there is mm. money in it to be made if you know how. We may have spoken about this before, but uh, there's the bloke in Sydney, Jitharf Jadeja, uh, who was interviewed by CNN and is very um, accomplished and totally rational and highly intelligent, and he was a far down the QAnon rabbit hole. And he had to tell Anderson Cooper, look, I'm sorry, I thought you ate babies. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Mm. Oh, man, I didn't see that. that mm. that's, just, that's just amazing. What was Anderson Cooper's response to that? It was like, yeah, well, thanks for... Seeing the light. Seeing the light. for the apology. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, but it's interesting that to talk himself out of or to convince himself away from the conspiracy theory required more internet use. Like... It was about well, and, watching debunking videos. Mm. Absolutely, but but I mean, you you need to you need to, I suppose, want to debunk yourself. That's yeah. the thing. The, the way that the internet, and particularly social media, is set up, it's an echo chamber. And then you know, there's been some research into whether algorithms are feeding this kind of thing. It's all very inconclusive about whether it actually does or not. But I mean, it, you you don't need to engage with social media too much to realise that it is feeding you largely things that it thinks you're interested in. And so when most of the content you're consuming is around the fact that you think that the world is run by a cabal of lizard people who live under the planet, then that kind of content is going to keep coming up and up again and you're not going to be exposed to anything that does debunk that unless you are actively seeking it out. God, the uh, it's so interesting. At health.gov.au, is it true? Can COVID nineteen vaccines connect me to the internet? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Again, the answer is no. I did actually do some research into where this particular one came from. Yeah. Now, the earliest recent uh, reference I can find to vaccines connecting people to the internet, um, I could find was in an actually an article in the Conversation, which surprised me. Um, Archer Fox from the University of Western Australia. It was an article debunking a whole lot of vaccine conspiracies, mm-hmm. and the idea came from the fact that people had made a connection between the possibility that some new vaccines that aren't available yet are experimenting using ingredients that are also used for stem cell implants. They're called hydrogels. Mm. And then people 
kind of made the made the mental jump from stem cells to electronic implants, and then all of a sudden they're saying that the vaccine is a modem. Now, no vaccines are currently using these ingredients, these hydrogels. Um, but and again, just so we're clear, they don't connect you to the internet. Yeah. But it is that age-old case of a little bit of information being a dangerous thing. Bloody oath. And nature abhors a vacuum. Like, you know, people get a little idea, they connect a whole lot of dots that aren't there. And in that brief period, it's like it's like the sweet spot where the information exists, but it's not pro- high, doesn't have high enough profile, so there's nothing to contradict it. Yeah. That's where it spreads out and gets out there. And once it's out there, there's no getting it back in the bottle. But oh, it right. is worth trying because the ABC reposted that conversation article and they actually removed a bit about the um, about mm. the Oh, dead set. Yeah. M- maybe so vaccines did connect us to the internet. More of us would get vaccinated. It <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good tactic. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean not, I'm not sure I want to be with the internet all the time. My phone's bad enough as it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dan Salmon, amazing. And uh, catch you on Tech Talk Wednesday. Absolutely. Thanks, up, guys. Bye. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You might have seen the uh, Sesame Street Circus. Did you see it um, around town? Oh, not around town. Right. It was in Mornington, I think, a few months ago maybe. It's gone to Adelaide. And these Big Bird bandits stole Big Bird costume. And they've since returned it. Oh, good. Mm. The costume is $160,000. What? Yeah. Why? Well, <laughs> Why I'd like to see you make a Big Bird costume. <laughs> see how easy you make. I mean, it's it's huge. I mean, the, the confronting thing is I don't think any civilian mm. would have ever seen Big Bird dead, like <laughs> like limp and unlived in. Against a dumpster. Against a dumpster, yeah. like all crumpled up and sad. Mm. I, I That would be incredibly confronting. <laughs> if you're a child. Oh, no, for everyone. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. No, but I mean, like, particularly if you're a kid who watches Sesame Street. Yeah, because it's Big Bird's eyes, the eyelids move. Mm. So you, yeah, you just close the eyelid. <laughs> so they've given it back. Uh, so the suspects who d- dubbed themselves the Big Bird Bandits said no harm came to the bird and he was a great guy. He said, we had a great time with Big Bird. What did you do with Big Bird? I, yeah, show me. I don't like that. It's, it reminds me of the Picasso, the weeping woman that was stolen from the NGV 35 years ago. And wh- what happened to the weeping woman? Well, they, there was a ransom. Mm. Well, no, there wasn't a ransom. There was a hostage note, I think, published in the newspaper uh, I think it was co- complaining about art funding, maybe. Th- this is a major event in Victoria's history. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but eventually, 16 days later, they said, look, it's in a, we've left it in a Spencer Street station locker and come get it. But that whole stealing something and then giving it back. So they just stole it and gave it back and just for the thrill. No, no, no. I, there's, I think it's, it, there's a line that, what's the line? The line is that everybody knows who took it but no one can agree. Oh. Like it's a it's a weird open secret maybe mm. in the art community. I don't, I've never heard anyone definitively get to the bottom of it. Um, but I do like the idea of s- stealing and returning. Because if there was, let's say it was dystopia and it, the, let's say there was full-blown looting in Melbourne, mm-hmm. where would you go? Mm. Now, I want to say I would not loot. 
No, of course not. I. That's why I think I would go to the library. Oh God, Daniel. And then I would take I would take the books and I then. Ret- <laughs> that is the uncoolest thing. I'm looting. I could go. <laughs> I could go anywhere. I'm going to go to the library. They're not even new. They're not even new. Books. Some of them are. Oh, and the CDs are so pretty good. They're all protected. CDs. Who's got a CD player? Where would I go? I would definitely want to go to the library because it's free anyway. Well, that's the thing. But when the civil rest, so let's say the civil unrest turned back to civil rest, it'd be like, okay, back down the chute. Oh, right. And then I would be, instead of looting, which is what I'm actually doing, I would be able to membership. convince myself that I was like the custodian of the books. <laughs> Do you think people, when looting happens, how common is it for people to return stuff anyway? Like get guilty? Yeah. I well, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's common. No. Uh, I would be curious to see what happens. I mean, I've people steal street signs. When oh yeah, my sister did that. Oh, is it there didn't a severe? Steal it. Yeah, because it's a, yeah. There is a, it wasn't it wasn't a severe. Um, I don't think we ever took. There's a severe avenue out near Warburton. Yeah. That we actually recently got a photo with, um, but because there's a whole bunch of them out there that we're not related to, but. Um, my brother and my older brother and sister went through a phase of like wanting to get street signs with their names on it. So she got, you know, her first name on a, I won't divulge just in case the cops are out looking oh, for uh, it. Be like me getting a Monique Street or something. Oh, so I looked see. it up and this is how long ago it was. Looked it up in the Melways, yes. drove out there um, and got on someone's shoulders, brought a, brought a um, thing to unscrew it from the pole and then yeah. just put it up in her bedroom. Do councils just factor this in? I guess so. I see so many street signs missing. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I, I remember going on a tour mm. where different kids would be getting their street signs. And then we got to my street sign mm. and it was so high up. <laughs> Everyone just gave up. No one cared about me. <laughs> but then you've got – you bring it home and what, you hang it on a wall. Yeah. That would stress me out. Like the door knocks, it's like they hear. Then there's a sign <laughs> on the wall of your – Did you steal that? No. Yeah, of your, your, your unethical behaviour. <laughs> I think it would be terrible. But it's, it's kind of like kids who run away and then come back. Oh, I definitely did that. We were talking about this with a friend recently and how because in the movies when a kid runs away and then they come back or they get found or whatever, mm. um, it's this outpouring of love. Oh, I'm so glad you're back. Oh, you know, don't you know, don't do that again. We love you. And, yeah. Um, so I tested it out when I was maybe about ten, and I just ran away to the park at the end of the street and sat in the tunnel and wrote in my diary or something. And um, but then came back and just got in the, the worst trouble. Ever. Right. And I was like, I wanted this to be an outpouring of love. Yeah. And instead now I'm just in the bad books. Yeah. How long were you, do you think you were gone? Was it oh. after the sun had gone down? I remember it was that it was like twilight. So I wasn't gone in the dark. It was probably I was probably honestly gone for an hour tops. Yeah. And how old were you, sorry? About ten. Yeah. And this must have been a good diary entry. Yeah, just talking about my feelings. Um, but I don't know, I think it just – but it's, it was such, an, such a thrill, yeah. you know, to be able to go on your own. I think I ran away and came back with my cousin and it's, it was not remarked upon because it was so embarrassing oh. to have returned and to, to have returned so quickly. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> My, it's like, oh, were you gone? I didn't even didn't even notice. But yeah. um, 
My favourite story about running away is actually from my partner. So when he was living in Germany as a little kid, so they moved from Australia back to Germany where his parents are from and he wasn't happy about it, you know, missed home um, and cracked it. So he would have been maybe nine nine years old, I think, um, and had a, had a got into an argument with his mum and was like, "That's it," and um, he ran away from home out in Germany and, and climbed out his bedroom window. And but as he jumped out the window, it was a ground floor, you know, house. It didn't matter. But he, he as he jumped out of the window, he hurt his ankle. Yeah. So he had to come back, and he came back and he knocked on the front door, and his mum was like, "Oh." Where, I didn't know you were gone. Where have you been? And he's like, well, I ran away, obviously. And he had his backpack with him and he'd taken a backpack and all that was in it was a pair of undies and an apple. <laughs> <laughs> he made it less than one step. I don't know how long he was actually gone for, but I think he had to swallow his pride when he's like, oh, I've actually hurt myself here. I have to come back. I wonder at what time he planned to eat the apple. <laughs> Change his undies. Yeah, exactly. It's also just quickly... Um, Apparently, you can buy old street signs from the councils. So when the signs all change colour or something, the old ones are sold off to reduce the very theft that we're explaining. <laughs> you don't have to steal kids, and this is signed by Texter. It says, a dork. <laughs> Thank you, dork. <laughs> we will go buy those old street signs. Melbourne's own Triple R. The recent announcement that scientists have made human monkey embryos and cultured them in the lab for two weeks made international headlines. And to discuss concerns around the science of making part animal, part human organisms, we're joined for Feature Creatures this week by Research Fellow in Biomedical Ethics at Melbourne Law School, Julian Copland. Julian, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thank you. Uh, Can you tell us what you know about this latest scientific advance? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's a study that was led by Professor Belmonte from the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in the US. Uh, and it involved taking six-day-old monkey embryos and then injecting with human stem cells and then taking these mixed embryos and culturing them in the lab for up to another two weeks. At the end of this process, the embryos contained a mix of both monkey and human cells, which means the human cells had contributed to the development of the embryo. Now, this study only involved early embryos. The researchers didn't allow them to develop. But if the embryos had been implanted into a monkey uterus, they could theoretically have developed into a live foreign animal. And then this animal would have been made up of a mix of monkey and human cells. Right. What? So they're they're legally obliged to destroy um, the embryo. What? Are there jurisdictions that where it's more of the Wild West? Yeah, so I, I did a paper on this a few years back, and it's quite possible that the legal landscape has changed a bit since then. But the, the strategy that's being used... So I should mention first, like I should mention sort of straight up that the aim here was never to create life on human monkey chimeras. The aim was to work out how we can better create human-animal chimeras so that maybe we can do the same thing in livestock animals like pigs or sheep and generate human organs inside of them. As far as I know, live-born human-monkey chimeras aren't really on the scientific agenda. Uh, But as for the sort of legal regulatory question, the technique used to make these embryos is quite new. And so there are, you know, to the best of my knowledge, quite a few jurisdictions where 
this particular way of making chimeric embryos is allowed and is permitted because you're adding human cells to an animal embryo, even though many of the same jurisdictions will prohibit the adding of animal cells to a human embryo. So it sort of sits in this uh, un unclear kind of regulatory legal space. Mm, which is where ethicists come in. What are the ethical, ethical issues that are raised by this? Well, there are a few. I mean, like any research involving human tissue, there are some ethical issues about how we, how we use human cell lines and human tissues in general. But I think the most interesting and the most serious is about the moral status of part human life forms. Okay, so let's say we perfect this technique, we move beyond early embryos and we start trying to develop human organs inside of, say, a human pig chimera or a human sheep chimera or something along those lines. And uh, we should point out there are really good moral reasons to pursue this study uh, insofar as it could lead to some really valuable medical knowledge. Um, it could provide a really good animal model of human diseases. And maybe we could even use these organs as a source of transplants for uh, people who might lose their lives if, if a kidney isn't made available to them. So those are like really good moral reasons to pursue the research. Uh, and on the other side, you have this concern about the moral status of the animals that we're creating. So, I mean, if we think again about the human pig chimera as a society, we treat pigs quite badly. Uh, we use them in harmful medical experiments. We, we farm, raise, kill, eat them because we think they're tasty. But we would never dream, I hope, of doing the same things to a human. You know, there, there would be uh, uproar if it was discovered that people were farming and eating humans or dragging them off the street in order to harvest their organs. So here we have a creature that's partly pig and partly human, and we need to work out, well, what, what moral status does it have? How are we allowed to use it? Which I think will involve us asking, well, what is it about humans that gives us our moral status? You know, what, what are the properties that matter? And then how can we go about working out whether a chimeric animal has also developed these properties? What are your intuitions? Do you think a human monkey uh, chimera would be higher in the pecking order than a human pig chimera? Oh, it depends. Uh, certainly the human monkey chimeras, the human cells integrated into that embryo uh, like with much greater success than in earlier research using, say, human pig chimeras. But I think, I think the kind of properties we need to worry about are mental properties. And I think most philosophers, philosophers would agree things like self-awareness or self-consciousness or autonomy or, you know, the fact that we're highly social creatures and a lot of the time we care about morality. These are the sorts of things we need to look for. And these properties are going to be linked to the brain. And so I think... The concerns are going to be greatest when we end up having like a significant proportion of human cells contribute to brain development, whether this ends up happening inside a monkey or a pig. I just think maybe can we can we go back a few steps when you're talking about this chimeras? Um, how does it? What does it? What does it look like? How is it used? How is it in out there in the world? Like, what people listening at home probably have a bunch of crazy images in their head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, like, there there have been different kinds of chimeras that have been created historically by science. There are things like the geep, which is a chimera made of a mix of goat and and sheep cells, and it looks like a cross between 
the two animals looks, you know, kind of like a pig, a pig kind of like a sheep, <laughs> kind of like a goat. Um, but if we're thinking about something like growing human organs inside of a human pig chimera, we would really be aiming to keep the contribution of the human cells quite low. So you would you'd have an animal that would presumably mostly look like, or, or maybe even completely look like a pig, but some of its cells would be human cells. And maybe even though most of its body is a pig body, it would have a predominantly human kidney growing inside it that we could use, use for transplants. Wow. So if we're relying on just humans to curtail their curiosity, like human scientists, isn't that a bit of a, is that a bit of a pipe dream, do you suppose? I mean, is this an inevitability? <laughs> I mean, I look, as, as far as I know, there, there aren't many rogue scientists out there, you know, twiddling their thumbs and trying to work out how to bring it up, Planet of the Apes. But mm. I, think, I think it's still worth very seriously considering what the moral boundaries of this research are. I think those questions are questions that are philosophical, ethical questions. They're not scientific questions. So they're questions we really ought to open up to a really broad discussion with, you know, among philosophers, of course, I'm a philosopher, I'm always going to say that, but among the public, uh, among scientists as well, among as many sort of stakeholders as we can gather so that we can work out, you know, well, what, what are the properties that we would be worried about a chimeric animal developing. And then, well, how, how do we actually go about monitoring these chimeric animals when we start producing them to make sure that they don't have a moral status that's similar to that of a human, to make sure that it would be ethically acceptable to use them in research? Hmm. As a biomedical ethicist, do you have a view on human consciousness and how it comes about? <sighs> Uh, that that's a very very good question um i think i think it's a kind of question where i'm, I'm not sure if there is okay my, my, my views on this are going to be controversial and mm -hmm. could yeah uh okay. interview any of my colleagues and they'd say something completely different but i i don't think that there is anything necessarily that unique about human consciousness i think the differences between humans and other animals for the most part are really differences of degree rather than differences of kind. And so I think it's worth, it's definitely worth trying to draw up these lists, trying to work out what we think it is that matters inside human consciousness. But I also think it's worth being very open to the possibility that maybe it's not just humans that have this. Maybe it's not even just human animal chimeras that have this. Maybe, maybe uh, a, a regular non-chimeric pig might have whatever we're worried about in the first place. And that this, this moral theorizing we're doing about human-animal chimeras and might end up shifting the way that we think about and treat non-human animals in general. Had you been thinking about this way, you know, in advance, because that's your profession? <laughs> yes, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and although this human monkey chimera study is quite new, some of the same researchers were involved a few years back in a similar study using human pig chimeric embryos. It was less successful. Not many of the human cells survived. Um, but I think that was like this, this moment where it became clear that scientists were trying to do this. They're trying to do this for very, very good reasons to save human lives. And it's really, you know... The time now, before we're producing live-born animals, is the time to start working out 
the moral limits to this research. Amazing. All right, so we're talking pigs chock full of human organs. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it could be pigs. It could be sheep. I think a lot of the I think a lot of the interest is in pigs. So yeah, um, pigs, human pancreas, human liver. Maybe super controversially, maybe even something like a pig with a human brain, so we can study Alzheimer's or oh. schizophrenia or something along those lines. But uh, this I think is getting that's very Orwellian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's definitely on the most controversial side and probably not what we'd be heading toward anytime soon. Okay. Uh, well, it's fascinating stuff, of course. Um, Julian Copland, Research Fellow in Biomedical Ethics at Melbourne Law School. Thanks heaps for chatting to us. Great, no worries. Mm-hmm. Have a good morning. Triple R. Award-winning journalist and creator of Pick Like a Girl, Kato Halloran, joins us to put a bow on a big season of AFLW. Hi, Kate. Lots to get through? Yeah, heaps to talk about, isn't there? Yeah, my God. Uh, where do you want to start? Uh, we can start with the grand final. Yeah, yeah I think that's good. Sounds like logical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good place to start. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was a pretty amazing day. I mean, another 20, almost 23,000 that we had in Adelaide. Um, wasn't quite the 53 that was there a couple of years ago, but I think considering it was pandemic and I don't know, someone told me the friend had tried to come over from Canberra and it was like $1,800 one way. So (laughs) I think, um, it was quite inaccessible to a lot of people interstate, um, but, yeah, the big underdog win from Brisbane, I think, was the big story. It Another just... incorrect tip from you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I did think that at some point. I thought, oh, my God, I know I said on air, Adelaide will smash it there and put 10 goals. She hardly touched the ball, so <laughs> I think I put a curse on them. Um, but, yeah, the Crows, I think, had 20 more inside 50s in the end, but they just wasted so many of their opportunities. And that was partly because of Brisbane's pressure, I think. Like, well, Kate Lutkins, who won best on ground and deserved it, I thought, had 18 disposals, but she had, like, what she have, eight marks and 10 rebound 50s to go with her seven contested possessions. She apparently was playing with a torn plantar fascia in her foot oh. since, and had been since round eight. Oh. So it's like, how is this possible? This woman's a machine. And between her, I think Conan, Lutkins and Campbell, the back line, had 17 marks. So they just, mm. they were impenetrable. You couldn't get past them. So wow. was, that, yeah. was that injury a secret? Yes, right. yes. It was only revealed at the um, press conference. Why, why is this so that no one intentionally exacerbates it on the field? Yeah, I mean... I can't imagine many of the women's players doing that yeah. per se, but yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it, I mean, I think it's just so that no one target or yeah, Tags would have recognised a yeah. weakness. Yeah. yeah. Full on. And we, we also had, I should have mentioned the uh, captain's curse because, well, Chelsea Randall was out with concussion um, and Erin Phillips, of course, famously did her ACL a couple of years ago. And then Ange Foley, who was filling in for Chelsea Randall, did her ACL like on the same spot where Erin Phillips did hers. And Emma Zilke did her um, right hamstring. So just the other, the Brisbane captain. So we had both captains out of the game. But wow. at least she retired on a high with the premiership. So. Yeah, but still I wonder what, what's there to say in that. We're putting too much pressure on themselves. Well, probably, yeah. I mean, your body breaks down eventually when you, <laughs> you're trying to juggle all of those things at once, work, family, footy, mm. you know. It's an intense season. 
Well, and what about the celebrations? Afterwards for Brisbane? Yeah. Yeah, they look like they had a good time. I don't know if you saw their sort of Mad Monday photos, but someone was dressed up as Trump and, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, they look like they had a good time. They deserved it, I think. I mean, they really deserved the premiership too. I mean, they had a fantastic season and they just, on the day it was like, I heard some people saying like, oh, it looks like the ball's just bouncing their way. but And it kind of did, but really they made their luck, you know. They just were balls at the gate and just, I don't know, Adelaide, you know, Charlotte Curtis said on ABC just capitulated like in a way we'd never seen before and I think they just couldn't withstand the Brisbane pressure. So what made you, oh, sorry to bump me, what made you so sure that it was going to be Adelaide though? (laughs) Um, Just the crowd really because I've been at Adelaide Oval before and it's a bit of a fortress. Like, I mean, especially when there was the 53,000 there. Mm -hmm. But you know, they're just I don't they've never lost at the Adelaide Oval. I mean, they usually play at Norwood, so that's doesn't that's not that significant. But in front of a home crowd they've crowd, they're very rarely beaten. I've never seen them play like that. They were fumbly, they were just in shock, it seemed like. I mean, they should have expected that, but they just had no capacity to respond. Mm-hmm. So Mm. What do you think it says about the conference system? This is the first year they've played without the conference system and do you think they'll keep going this way next season? Oh, I really hope not. For some reason, yeah. I think the AFL really wants to keep it, but everyone keeps saying, I mean, this year just shows that the two best teams made it when you didn't have a conference system. So I think if there's anything they could do to ensure the integrity of the competition going forward, I mean, firstly, every team has to play each other once, but mm. you can't have a conference system where we have teams that are just underperforming that make finals because of the, the quirks of the conference system. Yeah. And then... We had the best and fairest after all of that. Yes, on Tuesday. How exciting. Putting it on a Tuesday night is a bit rough, isn't it? The brown lows are always on a Saturday or like a weekend, isn't it? Aren't they on a Monday normally? No, oh, you definitely don't watch it. I don't know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess well, their they're... season's over, isn't it? So like, hopefully not a lot of them had to go to work the next day. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of them did actually yeah. from what they gather. So. Yeah, I think I heard um, a bit of an interview with uh, Kiara Bowers and she was on her way to work at 5.30 oh, after no. the Best of Paris Awards. She carpenter. Yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. that sucks. <laughs> yeah, and I think Bree Davey did some media at 7am and said she'd slept for about half an hour. Yeah. Crew, so <laughs> I think poor things, both of them and all the players. I mean, at least the rest of them refused media, but, yeah, the Best and Fairest didn't have any choice. So. Yeah. <laughs> and you were there? Yeah, yeah, it was a great night. Well, it was the first time we've ever had a tied... Um, Winner. So, mm. and it was a bit weird, I guess, because of COVID. We had Kiara in, uh, in WA and Davy in Victoria. So it was sort of like we had her on the screen. But um, what I found really nice about the night was Turbo Bowers just said, you know, I'd I'd love Davy to win it um, earlier in the night, and I, it seemed really genuine. And when she did win it, she talked a lot about wishing she was there to celebrate with her and that they'd have to catch up when she came down to Melbourne next. And I did ask Bree afterwards, do you know her very well? And she said, oh, not really. Like I played on her about five years ago when I first started and she was kind of sledging me a bit. And (laughs) (laughs) And here we are, we're joint winners. So I thought it's a nice story. (laughs) But that must be good. I mean, so last year the awards were what held in total isolation. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was fun to Zoom. Yeah, Yeah, so was it? pretty cathartic to see more people 
I think it was really nice for all the teams who could get together. Like at least in Victoria, there's quite a few teams um, that could have been there together on the night. So they all seem to be having a really nice time catching up with each other. I mean, I think people forget a lot of these players went before AFLW played together. So there's a lot of bonds across teams that wouldn't be there necessarily in the... I mean, I know it's the same in the men's, but it just seems different in the women's. There's a lot of... um, you know, friends between clubs, partners between clubs, everything, you yeah. know. So I think, yeah, it was really nice for them all to be there in the room and celebrate together. Has the competition announced the Rising Star as well? Yeah, so Tyler Hanks won the Rising Star from Melbourne in a third season. Um, very well-deserved. One of those kind of quirks of the Rising Star where I was like, I didn't realise she would even be up for nomination. I was sort of thinking of the first-year players like Jess mm. Fitzgerald and Ellie McKenzie, but... No, Tyler um, absolutely deserved it and, yeah, spoke well on the night as well. Very sensible. <laughs> is, is that uh, third year, so that surprised you? Do we know the rule? <laughs> Don't ask me off the top of my oh, head. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. But, yeah, Come on, like... you're supposed to be next. Yeah. <laughs> no. uh, and, and also the All-Australian team. Yeah, um, yeah. So that was that was interesting. Um, Dave. Well, ironically, Davey was named captain and Bowers vice captain, and then they later went on oh. to win the best and fairest. And um, also, Davey had won the players' MVP, and Bowers had won the coaches' MVP. So I think there was just no way of separating them wow. um, this year. But yeah, it was it, yeah. I thought I, it was a bit of it was just a typical Australian team. I felt like there were a lot of resting midfielders in the forward line, not a lot of pure midfielders. Darcy Vessio got on the bench and we're all sort of thinking, how can she make the bench with (laughs) the amount of goals she'd kick, not just this year but the whole competition. So, yeah. And this letter to Gillan McLaughlin? Uh, Yeah, from Brie Davey. It's pretty special, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I love it. I love it. It, Yeah, like I haven't reread it for a while but when I first read it I just, yeah, just – it's everything that's so special about the women's competition, I think. And Brie, just if you meet her, she's just a fantastic person. Like, you know, I'm not just saying that. She's very humble. If I ever try and get her to talk about um, her own performance, it's just team, team, team. And she loves the comp. She cares about women's footy and the growth of the competition. Um, but she's very actually, she's not very political when you talk to her. She's just sort of very game-focused and footy focused, which is which is fine. I think that's how she succeeds um, as well as she does. But that letter just shows how much, you know, the growth of women's footy means to her. So, yeah, yeah. It's special. Yeah. Any uh, closing final observations or thoughts on the season that was? Um, look, there's a lot to say. I mean, both good and bad, like there were, you know, Huge increases in viewership, 35% on last year, 49% on the year before. We had the first year of ticketing, 13 games sold out. Um, But I think we've still got the AFLW head or the head of women's football, Nicole Livingston, not wanting to give a vision or outline a 10-year plan. She just keeps saying it's too unpredictable to do so. Mm -hmm. But I really want to see a plan for how we're going to get to um, professionalisation or at the very least how we're going to better take care of the players and the toll that balancing career and footy and their low wages and injuries are taking on their lives outside of footy because the expectations are ramping up so we've got to um, treat them accordingly. Yeah. And how was your table at Crown? Did you get a good posse? <laughs> <laughs> I was on like the media table so I thought well, we'll be, you know, it was like 36 so I thought we'll be 36 out of 36 and like <laughs> right 
back with, you know, like <laughs> obstruction to our view, but actually we're, <laughs> we're sort of in the middle with a direct line to the stage. So, no, it was really nice and it was nice to be there. I think it's only the second time I've been and one time I was working, so it was just nice to not not be working and just enjoy the occasion. It's always a big season. I feel like the media and everyone around the comp, the staff, live these parallel lives of the players where you're trying to do two full-time jobs, mm. you know. I had my own health stuff during the season, so it was just sort of nice to be like, all right, that was huge, that was intense, but, yeah. you know, it was nice to cap it off and celebrate a bit. Yeah, yeah. bloody oath. Uh, well, thank you for all your dedication and work on breakfasts this year, and uh, let's do it all again. Yes, thanks for having me, and thanks, Emily, for filling in too. You've all been champs. Brilliant. Thanks, Kate. Thanks. That's right. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.